Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 2nd, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. If any of you heard my interviews with affiliates of the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, that's TAPS, or you might have been wondering the same thing I was last week when we saw the cons being dealt with by the GOP nominee. Well, the Vaunted TAPS organization has been working with Kazir and Khazale Khan, and I was relieved to know that they are getting the support. Founder of TAPS, Bonnie Carroll, who was on my show two weeks ago, was in contact with them as recently as last week. Well, as for today's program, it's my guest for the whole hour is UCI Distinguished Chancellor's Law Professor and coveted far and wide lecturer and blogger, Michelle Goodwin. She was recently at the Democratic National Convention, a perfect platform from which to vault into the presidential political arena. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the entire hour is UCI Chancellor's Professor of Law and commentator extraordinaire, Michelle Goodwin. She also maintains at UCI appointments with the Program in Public Health, Department of Criminology, Law and Society, Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies, and the Center for Psychology and Law. She is the founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. Professor Goodwin's expertise and her new ways of thinking, which is in worldwide demand, spans bioethics, constitutional law, family law, human rights, medical law, reproductive rights, and torts. Her course that she's currently teaching is Reproductive Justice Clinic. You can follow her topical commentary in her Huffing, Huffington Post blogs, LA Times, New York Times, Gene Watch, Gene is in Split the Gene, uh, Christian Science Monitor, Politico, Cleveland Plain Dealer, Houston Chronicle, Chicago Sun-Times, Washington Post, Alternet, and Forbes Magazine, or spend more time in her publications in the Harvard Law Review, California Law Review, Georgetown Law Review, Northwestern Law Review, and Texas Law Review, among others. Prior to joining UCI's law school, her appointments were at University of Minnesota, University of Chicago, UC Berkeley, and Columbia University Law Schools. She completed her BA in Sociology, Anthropology, African Languages, and Literature at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Her Juris Doctor, that's her law degree at Boston College School of Law and her an advanced law certification known as the LLM at the University of Wisconsin. 
She provided commentary over the Democratic National Convention last week, which she offers us today. She comes to us today from the UCI campus. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor Michelle Goodwin. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you on this very important show, and, and thank you for that well-too-generous introduction. <laughs> well, I, it just all makes us all wonder, like, how do I manage my time? She's getting all that in. Well, I've, I've been looking forward to this, Professor Goodwin, since, oh, I don't know, I kept missing all of the talks you've been giving around town. I, I, this is the last talk. This is the first talk I'm not going to miss. I'm going to do everything I can to catch the others, call in sick or do something like that. Well, <laughs> last month was a tale of two pageants. First, the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, then the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia were threads. And this is a mouthful, folks, but Michelle Goodwin, I know, is, is more than good for this. There were threads of pragmatism, fascism, and progressivism woven into an abundant array of speeches and platform planks. So which, which theme would you like to take up first on this messy slog in American democracy 2016? Well, let's have a conversation about it. You know, the first that we saw was uh, was the Republican National Convention, which took place in Cleveland. And it was uh, a convention like none other in that many of the prime speakers at the Republican National Convention were the candidates. That's Donald Trump's children. That's unusual. Um, usually there are more people of the party or who support the party who are there to speak. So there was an abandonment of what the norm is, and much of that has to do with the candidate himself. Uh, Donald Trump has been a very difficult candidate for Republicans, uh, to traditional Republicans, to get their arms around. He's had support from some of the Tea Party leaders, but even for some of them who realize that the longevity uh, for them in this party uh, means uh, moving back from the extreme. Even some of those people have become quite nervous. That said, um, there's tremendous gro groundwell support for Trump, as we saw. Many people did not imagine that Donald Trump uh, w a year ago would have been the Republican nominee. Uh, but what he did quite well was taking his um, his theatrics that he has done so well with by um, his television shows, particularly uh, the Celebrity Apprentice show. And he's been able to use the kind of branding. He's excellent at branding. And he's been able to use that, cultivate it, and weave it in to a process whereby he's gotten a lot of disenfranchised Americans uh, behind him. And, of course, there's also something that's slightly troubling in that, too. Um, as many reporters have noted, that coming into the convention, there were people um, giving Nazi salutes uh, to Donald Trump. And that's not been unusual. That's not the first time uh, that there have been individuals giving Nazi salutes. Um, his candidacy has brought out what some say is, is actually the worst in America, the, the sort of platform to make America great again. Many people see that as just simply cover for bringing America back to actually one of its most um, shameful and, for many people, terrifying periods in time. But I think that it's important that while we understand that latter point, to also keep in mind that what we see with the um, 
with the people who've come out to support Donald Trump is that there are lots of very um, angry and hurt feeling poor whites in America and working class whites. And there's an important history and legacy associated with that, which I hope that we get to talk about on the show. Um, and, and to just put a, a note on that, something that I find very interesting um, in that population that so supports Trump, this sort of idea of make America great again, for generations, those folks have not really been made great. I mean, if we really think about it, generations and generations ago, poor whites were disenfranchised from the vote. They kept believing that very wealthy white people would include them um, in, in, you know, in the promise of America. But, but let's, let's be clear. You know, whites were indentured servants. You know, the whites who, who <clears throat> during slavery, blamed their conditions on slaves. I mean, it really didn't make sense, right? Because, of course, black slaves had nothing to do with the fact that poor whites were disenfranchised. Right. And what's really interesting is the kind of missing of that history. In, in this moment, you know, and, and that many of those poor white people would see Donald Trump, Trump as, um, as their leader, someone who, you know, would somehow change that history for them, or it's a history that they don't fully understand and appreciate. But it's... So that's one angle of it. Well, that's... And unfortunately, though, it's um, there... I don't see that Donald Trump offers anything more to that economically disenfranchised class than Karl Rove has for the last 15, 20 years. Well, you are right about that. I, you know, what's become very clear through, um, through various media reports that have documented, you know, one, Donald Trump's taxes, which we don't know as most recent tax returns, but in the last three decades, he's only paid taxes, um, um, it's several years, five years, I, I guess, the New York Times reported in the 1970s, five years in the 1980s, five years in the, the 1990s. And many of the workers that he's used to build his casinos and hotels are workers who uh, have been temporary laborers from abroad. Um, and as well, the products that he makes um, are made abroad. So it's very interesting, this disconnect right. of, you know, make America great, we'll make you work again. And people support that ideology but are not seeing the facts on the ground, right. that that's not what this individual has practiced. So then, you know, you have to ask your question, then what is it that drives the affinity there? And, you know, part of what drives that affinity, we also saw in the Republican National Convention, which was that it was uh, an appeal to fear. You almost thought of Willie Horton again, you know, sort of the sense that uh, there is gloom and doom in the United States. And at one point he references that he's got to keep these folks safe from the gangs and the drug dealers who are going to come into their neighborhoods. But you have to say, you know, when was the last time the Crips invaded, you know, um, you Long know, Island. the Bloods invaded Trump Tower right? or any of those particular neighborhoods. The truth of it is drug dealing does exist. And the truth of it is gangs do exist. But also the truth of it is they're very localized. They stay within their communities. Uh, you, you don't hear about swarms of Latino gangs entering the suburbs or taking over poor white communities. That has never happened. That has never happened. And sadly, even when it has come to racial unrest and turmoil, the saddest thing is that 
you know, communities that engage in that tend to burn down their own communities. They, they don't actually go elsewhere and do that. And the crime rate is, has gone down. It's the lowest that it's been in 30 years. Um, the, the, the rate of illegal immigration is, is, is plateaued. It's not expanding. So this, this appeal to fear does not relate to actually what's happening in reality. But we also know that the appeal to fear can be very successful during times of election. And that, I think, is what marked much of uh, the Republican National Convention, sadly, uh, was this cultivation and this turn to a sense of intensifying fear and gloom and that something catastrophic is about to happen uh, to the communities of people who were a part of that convention well, and watching. Well, you've mentioned that the GOP nominee had brought on essentially what I would call his brain trust, his, his immediate mm-hmm. relatives that are his brain trust and that there, they were the showcase. What a contrast. Maybe you'd like to comment on the plethora of profiles and voices brought in on the Democratic National Convention arena. Well, that was, it was a, it was a very different type of a convention. Uh, it was a convention that involved a a range of voices uh, from those who are in Congress, sitting president, former president, uh, former Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, uh, parents of those who have uh, lost their children to gun violence. Very, very moving presentation by uh, a group of African-American mothers uh, to the parents of a fallen um, soldier um, who's in those periods have been in the news because they've recently been attacked by the GOP um, nominee. So it was a very different uh, type of a convention in that way. And it was also a convention that was marked by its own controversy coming in. Uh, There were Bernie Sanders supporters who really wanted to be heard and who felt that the, um, that, that the system itself is rigged, that the democratic process itself is rigged. We saw the beginning of that convention uh, with Debbie Wasserman Schultz um, having to um, step down uh, from that position after the convention, but then also not being able to grab the gavel and open the convention or have any speaking part during that convention. But what was also very interesting during the several days in which uh, the Democrats uh, made their platform to America and, and did their convention is the unifying nature of it by the end of it. Um, you know, in the beginning, you saw democracy really in action with Bernie Sanders supporters saying, we have a stake in this. We have come out. We've organized. Uh, we want to be heard. And you really saw the wheels of that turning and that first day, that Monday, and that Tuesday, and by Thursday, when Hillary Clinton uh, accepted the party's uh, nomination, you really saw this broad um, embrace, even if there are still some um, who are still at the fringes. But overall, it was a very, it was, it was a, a model convention in seeing um, a, unifying, um, a unifying stream and theme go through that convention. Well, my vantage point was streaming it live pretty uh, increasingly with each day I was able to watch more, actually. But 
the you were inside where exactly Michelle were you positioned at uh, in Philadelphia so I was inside the convention hall I was across from the main platform um, stage and uh, so I had a, a terrific uh, view straight in front of me of the various uh, presenters and so were you able to see sort of the shuffling around of of Sanders uh, supporters and their signs and that kind of thing? Because yeah, there was well, a criticism so yeah, about so where... I could see the floor. I had the vantage point of seeing the floor uh, below me and to see the delegates from the various states because there are there's signage, you know, so there's Illinois and there's Massachusetts, right, right. et cetera. So, yeah, so you can see the floor. And also that shuffling around that you're referencing... You saw that in Philadelphia, too. Um, there were marches and there were some protests early on. But I have to say that it wasn't it, it, it was it was it was robust and yet tame. It was the best part of seeing democracy in action, which is that people will come and they want to be heard. Right. Just as Fannie Lou Hamer years ago wanted to be heard. And I'm not comparing, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters to um to Fannie Lou Hamer and those who supported her, but the sense of what's important in a democracy, and I'd actually say that Bernie Sanders folks were heard much uh, more than um, yeah. than the cherished Fannie, Fannie Lou Hamer was when she brought a group of, of folks um, from Mississippi uh, to uh, the convention decades ago. Um, so it was it it was a an ideal situation, I think, that the Democrats could say in that uh, Bernie Sanders, um, he did not um, concede uh, until the end, where then he gave all of his um, votes By to Hillary. And that was a very touching and moving moment it was. Uh, as well. Yes. yes. Well, I want to know, though, from your vantage point, would you be able to say, see whether there was some kind of hidden hand that was sort of uh, sanitizing the dissension out of to, into unifying the the situation there i mean well here's what i say claudia that's such an excellent question i would say that there was absolute effort we don't even have to call it an invisible really? hand yeah there there was absolute effort of course to bring some unity to the party and it made sense i mean the reality is is that you know on the democratic side it's important to think about what and it's not just the Democrats. I mean, let's be clear what's happened since the conventions with Republicans saying, I can't do Trump. I think that there was a real sense of what does America need in the coming four years and what can be at risk if somehow the Democratic Party does not unify behind its leading candidate and move forward. Because just as we talked about in the opening, um, you know, what Donald Trump has stood for has even alienated even some Tea Party Republicans. I mean, let's be clear, you know, it, it, the Republican National Convention was one that did not mention, um, <clears throat> did not pay much attention at all to the fact that there have been black citizens who've been so brutally policed that it's resulted uh, and their deaths and the deaths of young people. I mean, look, that convention took place in Cleveland, and no mention of Tamir Rice, the little boy who was killed in less than 30 seconds while playing with a toy gun. You know, yeah, it was the, whitewashed. 
completely. Yes, I mean the you know the attacks on uh, the, the conflation and attacks on Muslim families, um, the appeals to fear, um, the keeping at it, it at its high you know rancor um, animosity against um, immigrants, and by that they're really talking about non-white immigrants. You know, that was what folks got from the RNC convention. Sadly, it didn't give them something more. It didn't give them a Reagan-esque view. And what's ironic is that many in the news have reported, and one could see at the DNC, that it was far more Reagan-esque than even the Republican National Convention. It really was this sort of, you know, nation, country, city up on the hill, you know, this sort of beacon of what American, what America is and what America can uh, become. And so, you know, when you think about, you know, was there a magic hand behind, you know, working towards unification? I, I think that it was more than magic. <laughs> I think it was many hands saying that, you know, look, this needs to get together because what's on the other side is a bit scary. You know, as Hillary Clinton said, you know, for a man who can be baited with a tweet, and, it, you know, it, the, the, the convention hall erupted because, in reality, we've all seen that. You know, we've, we've all seen, you know, that Donald Trump can, in fact, be baited. With, oh, it's non uh, it's nonstop. It, it's unrelenting is, is what. So it was sort of like she fell into that line without any effort. Well, I, I just want to let folks, folks who just joined us, you're tuned to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is UCI Chancellor's Law School professor and award-winning author, advocate, lecturer, and social commentator Michelle Goodwin recently returned from the Democratic National Convention, posting it all in on our show today. So, and we're talking about the the differences in the the feel and the look and the sound of the two of the respective conventions. I guess I I I um, wanted to get to the the party platform planks uh, when uh, in due time uh, but I guess one the one sort of distinction I'll make is it, it, it's too facile I realize but the both the conventions and the the the, the plot party platforms had a kind of Ozzy and Harriet versus modern family slash blackish <laughs> that is so clever but you, you know, but you're right. And so, um, even with the Republican um, National Convention, the way in which they've labeled their platform, and let's be clear, this has been, you know, a continuation of their their platform. It, their their platform has held strong to what they see as important values, and they call it uh, even this this you know the part that's dealing with law and constitutional issues. They call it a rebirth of constitutional government, which is interesting because some would say that part of the kind of fear-mongering that you saw with the RNC, you know, reflected almost the tone of that um, film and the book that preceded it, Birth of a Nation, yes. you know, and so it was Birth of a Constitutional uh, Government that, yes, has um, has a view of, let's say, marriage that um, explicitly they say is just between a man and a woman, even though at the convention they did try to expand it by, for the first time, having an out gay man speak at the convention um, and then also having uh, a couple of black people speak at the convention, um, ministers um, and uh, Dr. Ben Carson and then also an employee of Donald Trump. 
But the convention platform is is no different. It, it has not evolved, let's say, than four years before, eight years before that, 16 years before that. Pretty much the same strong on um, religious values, which, of course, the Constitution is, too. But, of course, religious values shouldn't, the rhetoric of that shouldn't be used to harm other people. And that's one of the things that, you know, we see cropping up in American discourse right now, where there are county clerks that say, I will refuse to issue a marriage license to a gay person, or corporations that say, well, because of our religious identity, even for-profit companies, right. we don't want to provide contraception to our female uh, employees who request certain kinds of contraception. And you see the Republican National Convention, um, the Republican Party's um, platform, platform, being pretty consistent with those kinds of values, an anti-abortion uh, platform um, that uh, – shows as its progressive front that from the point of conception, which is what they have embedded in the platform, that men should be responsible for the care uh, of the uh, embryo, fetus, and baby uh, that ends up resulting from conception, but not about women, independence, autonomy, and right to have an abortion. I want and so to... that's very different, yes. of course, than... Um, than the way in which the Democratic um, National Convention, um, you know, sort of presented itself in the platform of the Democratic Party um, that, you know, specifically mentions ending systemic racism. Go figure. That's not something that you'll see um, anywhere in the Republican platform, even the identification that racism can be systemic embedded uh, and institutionalized, uh, that's, a, that's a framing that you just won't see um, uh, from the Republican uh, platform. Um, trade, um, and, you know, both platforms um, recognize the importance of addressing uh, trade. And I have to say that, in, you know, on both sides, it, what's interesting there is the Republicans, you know, say that, you know, free trade has worked well, and when it works well, it's good for folks. What's interesting is that there and as well with the Democratic National Convention, one thing that you could see in common is that there is a concern about where are American jobs, are American jobs uh, going abroad, what's being created to bring jobs back home. And so within both, there is uh, some real concern there. Well, I want to open that up, that more of those specifics in a moment, but I wanted to refresh everyone's memory of the post-Mitt Romney loss to Barack Obama uh, in his re-election, the, the autopsy that was done, and thinking of that autopsy and what they brought into their current platform for this year. And I'm quoting them in uh, three different stretches here. First is, our party knows how to appeal to older voters, but we have lost our way with younger ones. We sound increasingly out of touch. One quote. Second quote. We have become expert in how to provide ideological reinforcement to like-minded people, but devastatingly we have lost the ability to be persuasive with or welcoming to those who do not agree with us on every issue. And the third quote, that, and final, I'm going to bring into this, America is changing demographically, and unless Republicans are able to grow our appeal the way GOP governors have done, 
the changes tilt the playing field even more in the Democratic direction, end of quote. So, Ooh. <laughs> so it, it, all of the, they paid their consultants a lot of money to be really uh, insightful, but it didn't carry forward into what either the Trump family brain trust brought to it or the, I mean, they're really, really the most conservative of Republican congressional delegation members that were involved in the drafting. Well, you know, you're right. And so it raises a question, you know, could they be in a different space? Could those who feel as if their party has slipped from their hands have been able to, you know, gain control and steer the ship better had they actually paid attention to what their consultant said in the, you know, postmortem um, after Romney? And, you know, I, I, there I see a couple of issues. I think yes. one— um, you know, they paid a lot of money to figure that out, and, I, and that all makes sense. That totally makes sense. But the, the problem is that there has been this rancor and animosity against President Barack Obama. And From the beginning. We will do nothing, right? I mean, it's what Mitch McConnell said right after Barack was elected, you know, and then it's what he said, you know, after the reelection. And so part of what we see, too, is that the party failed to do something in their effort to just do nothing and to be obstructionist against President Obama. The party failed to actually follow through and cultivate working with you know people of color, working with young people, uh, working you know across lines of, of disagreement. You know, in one of the areas where you can see how that crystallized this sort of you know, stuck in some quicksand there, sadly, Yes, was that even Ted Cruz and, and you know, Senator, you know, Rubio, if you notice, neither of them said that they were Latino, basically. I mean, we know no, that they, they are. Yeah, that was a but, many times, yeah. But no, but it, but it just, like, never came up. But, right. you know, we, look, we are Latino. I'm, you know, listen to us. Be with us. It wasn't something that even they really articulated during the times that they were running their campaign as if it was, you know, as Off if script. it's something, a, a, a worrisome spell. You can't say Latino. You can't say black. That's unfortunate because that's not always the way that the Republican Party has been. And I think that if you, if, if you were to survey Democratic members of Congress, if they would tell you that at some time prior, there were really some terrific relationships with some members of the Republic, Republican Party who were in Congress. Right. Um, I, I have to say one of the first jobs that I had in college uh, came through a Republican administration. Tommy Thompson uh, was the governor right? of Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, uh, the insurance commissioner that he had for the state hired me when I was, you know, 18, 19 year old, years old to do some work. I mean, there, I, I think that it's important that we recognize that what we see today and what we see in the current GOP nominee, Donald Trump, is not necessarily consistent at all with where Republicans used to be 20 or 30 years ago. It's a very different kind of party if you looked at that convention this year. Okay. Well, I let's then we can talk about the the planks that uh, where we can see the the ideological aspect working through when we look at the health care 
plank in each of the platforms where the Democrats offer working, refining the Affordable Care Act, and the Republicans' counter offer is the block grants in lieu of a, an, a national insurance type of a program. And I know you know what block grants do, so why don't you help our listeners understand what would happen What's the what kind of ideological uh, sort of localized state right kind of maneuver that plank offers? Sure, sure. Well, let's talk about it in this way, um, in in the sort of most conversational tone. <laughs> you know, with the with the Affordable Care Act, uh, it's the first major um, health care reform that's been passed in our, you know, some would say it's the first, but, but not if you look at Medicare and, and, and Medicaid. Um, and, and it's the first, you know, kind of robust since those, um, since that legislation to really try to make sure that Americans have access to health care. Let's remember that prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act or the ACA, that we had nearly 50 million Americans who were uninsured. Um, let you know, Senator Warren, um, before she became Senator Elizabeth Warren, she was a law professor at Harvard, an expert in bankruptcy, and the research that she was doing on bankruptcy exposed how crippling the effects of paying health care bills were for Americans. This is the leading cause of bankruptcy by a wide margin. In the United States, the truth was people just couldn't afford to pay their health care bills. And in that, we're not talking about poor Americans or working class Americans. This was the leading cause of cause of bankruptcy for middle class. Insured Americans. And, and those, yes, absolutely. And so the Affordable Care Act was, was something that was meant to, you know, kind of, one, provide greater access, but also provide greater access to people who also were doing somewhat okay, but still suffering under the weight of health care um, bills. For example, um, expanding the window of opportunity for young people to be covered under their parents' plans until they're in their mid-20s versus just being cut off at 18 or 21. That's a big difference. Many people support that. Um, at the same time, pre-existing conditions, oh, my goodness, you know, pre-existing conditions are, were so um, amorphous, if you will, and yet so vague that any insurance company could, you know, name anything a pre-existing condition. The fact that you had had the flu before could be a pre-existing uh, condition. If you had I mean, a baby. Anything to, sure. Yeah. The, for women, the fact that you had been pregnant before, if a company wanted to say, well, that's a pre-existing condition, we can't cover the prior, preg you know, the next pregnancy. It, it, it just that. And so with this law, no more of that type of rhetoric, basically opening the door to continued service for people who were being shut out. And this included people who had experienced breast cancer before, uh, colon cancer, other things like that. So really expanding the, you know, the opportunity for people to simply be covered. Right away, there was Republican backlash against that. Why? Who knows? And then there would be some that say, well, we would just get rid of uh, the Affordable Care Act, but, but we'd keep those benefits for the, for the young people, you know, and we'd keep these benefits, so, you know, the pre-existing condition. Anyway, well, back to this point about, you know, tweaking the Affordable Care Act on the Democrat side to make it better. On the other hand, you know, Republicans saying, let's just, you know, do these black grants, let's let states decide, which has been a pretty consistent 
theme here with the exception around some gun control, right? So the idea is that if you let states decide that's always going to be better, let's limit government and government reach on any number of issues. The only issues where um, there tends to be some flip-flop there happens to be when state and local municipalities want to engage in gun control. And that's when that that's suddenly when, you know, states' rights and local rights don't matter. Well, but the, and the problem with block grants is that that is the state to it's the state right. The state decides what happens to that money. It's not a guarantee that it's going to cover and protect people's insurance policies. That's absolutely right. So people end up back in the same boat where where they were in, uh, marginally covered, if any coverage uh, at all. And you're absolutely right that those resources can be spent, however. Uh, however, the local government decides that they should be, which then means that it's not a guarantee that people are going to be covered. And then that, of course, shifts then to um, hospitals uh, to provide, you know, emergency care. And one of the things that uh, hospitals um, have uh, been burdened by sometimes um, is an inability to keep up or so many resources going towards emergency care. And this, too, we saw before the Affordable Care Act, too many Americans getting their primary care and treatment through emergency rooms, which is, uh, one, um, economically uh, inefficient, but, you know, two, and perhaps the most important, is that it doesn't help people's health. The idea behind the Affordable Care Act is that you could engage in preventative care models so that people could, you know, we could work towards wellness rather than just emergency care after people are already sick and harmed and where it's much more costly and less probable uh, to make them healthy again. For those of you who just tuned in, my guest on Ask a Leader is... UCI law professor Michelle Goodwin, who was a commentator at last week's Democratic National Convention. And we're talking now, we're breaking down particular planks in each of the party's platforms. And I'd like to move into what the Trans-Pacific Partnership issue, uh, that is, I think, the clearest definition, uh, one of the clearest, uh, between the two parties' centers of gravity and approaches that the it was struck completely from the Republican Party platform. And in the Democratic Party, that is where the Bernie Sanders supporters pushed the center over to the left by opening up a dialogue and putting in a position about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, and, and let's be clear, it's also um, the space too, where Hillary Clinton, uh, in her acceptance speech, had to address it um, head on and to say that, you know, it's, it's a space where we can't, you know, move forward. And you're right. I mean, there were the signs at the convention uh, that had to circle with a slash in the middle about the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. And Bernie Sanders supporters uh, were adamant that this can't go forward. And the Democrats had to address that. They couldn't let it go by because it was a central issue amongst the Bernie Sanders supporters. The question will be how exactly um, will the, you know, if President, if, if Hillary Clinton, if Secretary Clinton is elected, how exactly uh, will they go about trying to implement that platform agenda? And I, 
I just want to give you an opportunity. I think it's 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 sort of self-evident what their positions are, but it's your area of uh, ex of your many areas of expertise is the the division in uh, reproductive rights between the two-party platforms. Yes. Well, you know, as I say, you know, they're just explicitly different. Um, the conventions were very different. Uh, Cecile Richards spoke at, she's the uh, Planned Parenthood. president, the CEO of Plan Planned Parenthood. She spoke at the Democratic National uh, Convention. You'd not see her anywhere near the Republican National Convention. And so one is a platform that moves forward with supporting uh, Planned Parenthood and and other uh, other entities that want to be supportive of women's reproductive uh, rights, and a Republican uh, platform uh, that puts um, life first. That's an anti-abortion platform um, that says. So what's interesting is that in the platform uh, they say that we're not seeking to punish women, and that could be in direct response to the fact that Donald Trump, um, during, uh, during his campaign season, said that women who seek abortion should be punished. And so in the Republican platform, they say, no, women should not be punished. But our way of addressing our pro-life platform is that men should be responsible for helping women economically when they become pregnant. But of course, that fails to recognize a woman's um, body as being her own, her own independence, her own uh, autonomy, uh, which you see baked into the Democratic uh, platform. So it's very, very different, um, the two. I want to give ample opportunity for you to take up Black Lives Matter in, I think it was just before the... Republican National Convention, you were, you were on vacation. You were tiling it in the Huffington Post on your yeah. vacation there, and you wrote a blog on the Huffington Post, an open letter to Diamond Reynolds, Philando Castile's significant other, and it was relative, a very revelatory piece for all of us, and I, I want to give you a chance while we're talking about where the centers of gravity are and gestures and uh, opening up to any sort of real productive kinds of attention that will be given and, and policy developed around. Could you tell us a little bit about sure. what you put in that blog as we then I'll uh, ask sure. more about what whether sufficient black voices were sufficiently raised and, and allowed in uh, the by the time you were covering the Democratic National Convention? Thank you so much for that. And, and can I tag on just one yes. bit more on the reproductive justice oh, yes, please. Front, 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 and then I'll go right into that. Um, one other thing to, that the Democratic um, platform says um, or addresses about abortion is this um, recognizing that no matter where a woman lives, how much money she makes, or how she's insured, that uh, this is a justice issue, it's a health right and justice issue, women being able to secure an abortion. And one thing that I want to to share with, with that, yes. um, and I try to share it as much as I can to try to at least provide a better education about what abortion does, a woman is 17 times more likely to die carrying a pregnancy to term than having a legal abortion. The World Health Organization compares a legal abortion to a penicillin shot. Quote, okay. unquote. Wow. So I just think that that's an important piece because there's so much rhetoric around abortion that many people think, well, 
that, you know, a woman's life is being saved when she doesn't have an abortion. But the reality is she's 17 times more likely to die if she doesn't. And that's the reality of, of childbirth in the United States and the reality of abortion. And the Democratic platform speaks to this issue of poverty where it's even more acute, where a woman's life is even more in danger with carrying a pregnancy to term. We have very, very high infant and maternal mortality in the United States. In fact, we rank around 50th in the world. Um, so that's really important to talk about when we talk about abortion, to right. put it in, in context about what does that actually mean when in a Republican platform they'd say carry uh, this child a term no matter what, including in states that are most vociferous about that. Those are the states where women are much more likely to die and their infants, too. Um, which says something more. Um, now, no, wait, before, black lives no, wait, no, no, let me, I just yeah. want to tack on since you mentioned that. And that's the Ozzie and Harriet component of the Republican national platform is that this fact that you bring up has been known for decades. And so it's not yeah. like it's a, a, a new Journal of American Medical Association article publication research. It, this has been known. So that's, I mean, that's where I, you know, start to get my, my veins kind of enlarging. Oh, there. sure. So well, th I mean, and that also, when we think about, you know, who we are, what we do internationally, when we, ex when we export that kind of platform, when we say, well, look, if you're going to receive aid from us, then your policies have to be centered on a very conservative view of abortion, which is that no federal, no funding from the United States, if these funds would in any way be used for abortion. Well, you know, you, you, you look at um, places where the Zika virus, you know, has, has had such an impact. How much has U.S. policies about contraception and abortion, how do those weave into that? Or what do these things right. mean in southern states where you have such a high death rate of women who are carrying these pregnancies to term when we know they're more likely to die when they do that than having a legal and safe abortion? And, you know, it's a kind of death sentence that we don't talk about, that it's almost like that you can't talk about. And, and it's, it's shameful. It is truly shameful that we would put women's lives at risk rather than being honest about what these procedures actually do and what they actually mean. So I try to clarify that because the literature is there. It's all empirical. And as you say, it's nothing new. This is what we've known for decades. And as I say, the World Health Organization compares the safety of illegal abortion to receiving a penicillin shot. Right. Um, so um, on to Black Lives Matter Please. and the piece that I wrote um, while in, in Europe. Well, I was very taken by um, the video that captured um, Philando Castile in the wake of his uh, killing, and that was captured by Diamond Reynolds, um, his partner, with the uh, daughter in the back seat. You know, it, it provided a lens into uh, what this, these tragedies, these, these tragic killings mean, not just for the individuals who succumb to police violence, um, but also for their family members. Yes. That there was a child in the car. And that was such a terrifying week in America because there were also the snipers who targeted police. 
And so I think that there was, you know, so much pain and hurt and confusion in the United States and trying to figure out, well, how exactly do we address these kinds of issues? For many, many decades, you know, African-Americans have been saying that police violence is real. And it was in the wake of Michael Brown's killing and there being no video and an officer who's six foot four saying that the six foot four black youth intimidated and scared him and scared him so much that he had to shoot him so many times in the back. Even though this officer had a police car, this kid was unarmed, this kid was simply walking in the middle of the street. But I think that there was so much pain and anxiety in the wake of Michael Brown's death that then people just started videotaping this stuff all over the place. And suddenly it's a very different dialogue. I mean, it's very interesting to look back to the Michael Brown moment with a nation divided. I mean, a nation truly divided where very well-meaning, loving white Americans said, well, I just cannot believe that this officer would just simply shoot this kid. This kid had to have done something aggressive. This kid had to have tried to beat up the officer. This kid had to have tried to snatch his gun away. That those are the only things that seem logical than for this officer to have, you know, engaged in what he did, which was to shoot so many times at this, you know, young man. For African Americans, it's a very different story, and that's the story that we've seen captured in these videos. It's the story that we saw captured in Diamond Reynolds' video as, oh, my goodness, was she ever come in providing us a view into the car? And even in the aftermath of that, the, the clinician, the therapist who was shot in Miami right. while trying to help his autistic patient, as he has his hands in the air and as he leans back and he explains, I'm a therapist, I'm helping my autistic patient. My patient has a, a, a plastic toy. It's a, it's a plastic truck. My hands are in the air. And yet the officer comes over and shoots him. And when the therapist asks, why did you shoot me? The officer says, I don't know. These are difficult conversations for us to still have in the United States. There's, there's still a lot of polarization around what it is that we see and how we interpret um, what it is that we see. And so I've, along with um, clinical psychologists and others, have launched a task force where this year we'll have town hall meetings in Washington, D.C., in Chicago, and also in California where we can all get together and talk about what these things mean in our communities for everybody. Because the reality is that gun violence has impacted us all. And even when an officer shoots the unarmed black person, that officer is impacted. That officer's family is impacted. I mean, we're all living with, living with a kind of brokenness that we've not talked about that right. centuries old in our country. Well, in the, the Democratic National Platform plank, there's a reference to this, and you're talking about what ails in a very profoundly institutional way, like th that there, there's a, like a hard wiring for many of these police officers, the ones that were involved in these shootings, or the hard wiring is uh, minus provocation, there's a shooting. The, the, the platform says we will push for a societal transformation to make it clear that black lives matter and that there is no place for racism in our society. So it's, uh, and I, I, I guess I'm, I want to pivot. I want to mention just one voice that I thought was very new to me, and he was given, he got out 
another voice that we don't ever hear in any convention. Reverend William Barber, and this is going to be like the last point we make, unfortunately. We could, we have another hour coming up uh, 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 we could continue to do, but it's not available. But anyway, Reverend William Barber spoke at a pretty decent, visibly uh, signed slot in the on the third, the final day of the Democratic Convention. That's the fourth, not the third. And he gave voice to Palestinians on equal footing with Israelis. Did you hear his talk? Unfortunately, I did not hear his talk live, but yes, I heard his talk, yes. So it's going to be, a, everybody can take a look at all of these videos, I'm presuming from both the, the Republican National and the Democratic National Convention, so you can witness really phenomenal kinds of, it's not just, the, uh, there were so many, so many amazingly, well, yes. Well, with his talk, did he say that, you know, the, the euphemism was that he dropped the microphone and that he brought down the house uh, with his speech. Um, yeah. And, you know, there, there are many that said that his, his talk was truly uh, transformational. Yes. Um, you know, and, you know, as he talked about uh, the fight to reinstate the power of the Voting Rights Act and to break the interposition uh, and nullification, you know, of what's happening um, in Congress and particularly how that has impacted people in the South. And he also spoke to the importance of public, in, of public education, of immigrant rights, of LGBTQ rights. And I think that that rang home in a really powerful way, particularly that he's coming from the religious bench, you know, and he did say, you know, when we love the Jewish child and the Palestinian child, the Muslim and the Christian and the Hindu and the Buddhist and those who have no faith, but they love this nation, we are reviving the heart of our democracy. And of course, that's incredibly powerful who can't be moved by a right. statement that says we are all in this together and when we love the children from those communities then we are loving ourselves and loving our democracy and one point on that yes one subtle thing that really crystallized in secretary clinton's acceptance speech was how do children how will children understand this moment in america what is it that children see what is it that we want to see for our children? And not just that kind of lofty, you know, what's going to come in the future. I mean, this election is really crystallizing to the very present, not just about how these children, what the future will be for these children when they become adults. <laughs> but what right, is it that right. kids oh, are well, actually witnessing right now in this time? Well, I thank you so much, Michelle Goodwin, for your time and the pleasure of getting your insightful commentary today. Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you and your audience, and I look forward to our next conversation. Oh, as do I. My guest was UCI Chancellor Professor of Law, Michelle Goodwin, with this most privileged vantage point on the Democratic and Republican national conventions and this whole electoral season. Well, it, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from Medicare, Medicaid Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ashby Wolf, to talk about end-of-life issues and those discussions patients and doctors and families can have with one another. Then on to our immediate cultural scene with Cassandra Koblenz, curator at Orange County Museum of Art, about the Brian Bress exhibit, as well as some other offerings that could interest uh, all of you. 
talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you.